So welcome to this special edition of the Hyperallergic Podcast. We're going to talk about COVID-19 and the coronavirus, which of course has forced most of uh, New York, as well as many other cities around the world, to either work from home or to practice something we're calling social distancing. So we're in the office. We're, I guess, kind of social distancing, but not <laughs> maybe not the way others have asked. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about what's going on and what we're hearing as reporters at Hyperallergic about COVID-19 around the city and beyond. So my name is Harag Vartanyan. I'm the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic, and I have two reporters with me. This is Valentina Delicia. I'm a staff writer at Hyperallergic and happy to be here in the office today. I'm Hakim Bishara. I'm also a staff writer. Great. So let's get started. Valentina, you've been updating our daily blog of COVID-19 happenings around the art community. Do you want to give us a little update? Sure. It's hard to know where to start because it seems like there's an ongoing revolving door of uh, festivals, museums, fairs, all sorts of art events, either canceling altogether or postponing for a quote-unquote future undefined date. Here in New York City, it seems that the Metropolitan Museum of Art's announcement that they were indefinitely shuttering last week led a number of other big New York City institutions to follow suit. So we had the Brooklyn Museum, MoMA, the Whitney, the New Museum, the Jewish Museum, the Shed, the Frick Collection, and all of the public libraries now uh, shutting, shutting down for the next couple of weeks. So I think right now the big question that a lot of museum employees are asking, especially those hourly and part-time museums, is will we be paid for this time that we're away? Of course, those with full-time employment, full-time schedules are lucky enough, and those that can work from home, of course, are lucky enough to continue to be compensated. But we are really concerned right now about visitor services. We're concerned about ushers. We're concerned about security guards and those at museums that, you know, clock in at the beginning of the day have an hourly rate and some museums have not yet provided their protocol for whether they'll continue to compensate those employees. Okay, so, so we're talking about the precarity of workers that are already precarious as it is under these conditions. That's right. You know, and I mean, I know here at Hyperallergic, we've been impacted too. I mean, I think all small businesses, individuals are going to be impacted by this because, you know, when people get scared, they start pulling their advertising and their different funds and, and you know, and decide to cut part-time workers and all these different types of things. And so, I mean, we need a government response personally. I mean, what do you think, Hakeem? What do you think is going on? Well, I'm worried about the people who have children and now they have to stay with the children at home, Yeah, which can be uh, a nightmare. Right. <laughs> Especially if you're working from home, it doesn't really mean you get to work from home because your children are running around. I know that's the experience of no, a lot that's of my it. friends. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. And um, it's still cold outside, so you can't take them out, really. Right. And now they're even limiting, you know, different kinds of places you can go. And who knows? I heard in, in Paris and other cities, they're also restricting people walking in parks. Oh, God. Um, so I only imagine, because I know a friend of mine went out to Fort Greene Park this weekend, which is a popular park here in Brooklyn, and it was packed. I mean, there were tons of people. I did, too, actually. You did? You were I there as well? Packed. Yeah, I have pictures. And I mean, it was like, so what was the mood during that time? I mean, people were telling me it felt very normal. 
it felt very normal to me. Uh, a lot of kids in that area of Brooklyn, you always see a lot of kids. But I have to say, there's a sense of like, our kids need to get out of the house. Right. And, and we need to let them roam free somewhere because we're all going crazy. That was kind of the vibe that I got. But I went out for a run. You know, I tried to keep distance from other people. But, but I do feel like we need fresh air and sunlight. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Some places have risen to the level of a curfew. Right. Okay. So it's not yeah. quarantine anymore. And I, I suspect we're going to get to that level soon. Well, I mean, I think also because this weekend, a lot of people were saying people are at bars. And St. Patrick's Day, as much as it was impacted, I mean, people were still out. And you kind of have to wonder, it's like, I don't think people are realizing the seriousness because I think there's also a little bit of an idea that people are saying, oh, well, you know, if it happens, it happens. But I don't think people realize that this is really about the way it impacts the health system and whether it gets overwhelmed, which could lead to a lot of more deaths. Yeah, that's the issue. Yeah. But don't you think it's weird? I mean, while walking outside, because it's an invisible enemy, mm -hmm. don't you think about it like it's in the air? Right but you can't see it. Things look normal. Although, right. you know, the streets, this morning on my way to work, because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to live close to work and I walk. Yeah, Hakeem and I both get to walk to work, so that's why we're here. And then Valentina <laughs> braved nice. it. Yeah, bra Valentina braved it to make it here. The streets are empty. Yeah, they're pretty, I mean, quite empty, yeah. Yeah, especially in a neighborhood like this, Williamsburg, which is uh, quite popular, people like, you know. Walking, walking around, around, yeah. Around. Well, I mean, you know, there's no sitting area left. You know, restaurants, my favorite coffee shop today, like took all the tables away. It was takeout only. You can't hang out yeah. there. So, I mean, life has definitely changed temporarily. So, Valentina, is there anything else that you discovered that might be peculiar that you're expecting to see you haven't seen? Yeah, so it's been interesting to see how galleries, different galleries are reacting to this. We have some galleries like Pace, Gagosian, Hauser that have closed their doors. And then we have some galleries that are still operating by appointment. So galleries like Loring Augustine, I believe Petzl is still by appointment. And then I think even more interesting is the way that some galleries have just adapted their schedules to decrease the influx of visitors such that there aren't that many people at the same place at the same time. For example, Essex Flowers Gallery, it's an artist-run gallery in the Lower East Side. What they decided to do, rather than canceling the opening of their show this weekend, and instead of having a 6 to 8 p.m. opening that would give people only two hours to go into the space, they decided to have a kind of day-long opening spread over, I believe, six to eight hours. And so in that way, less people coming into a space, less risk of uh, contagion and kind of trying to adhere to social distancing as best as possible. And we have some galleries like Hall Gallery in Brooklyn that just went out and said on their Instagram publicly, you know, we usually don't get more than just a couple of people here in the space, even on normal days. Um, so we feel that it's safe to continue operating. That's interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. That's interesting what you said about Essex Flowers. And uh, I like that, uh, that gallery and it's a it's a cool um, artist-run gallery with eleven members running it. Mm -hmm. But who's gonna go to that opening? Well, the artists and their friends probably. Which I mean, I mean, let's be honest. What happens to most openings, right? I think, as someone who's involved in a in an artist-run gallery yeah. in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. we also did you know meetings by appointment only. But again, nobody wants to meet these days. And I think it's safer to keep a distance, really. 
Yeah, I think it's more realistic, absolutely. So how about some of the others? How about museums or, or festivals or anything? That, any observations about what's going on there? Festivals. They're all gone, right? Not looking they're not great. A, yeah, they're all, they've all shuttered right now. So we're seeing festivals around the world canceling. Obviously, South by Southwest was a really big one. South by Southwest was very impacted financially by having to cancel this year's festival. Apparently, it's been hit so hard that it had to lay off one third of its staff. Crazy. So again, we're yeah. seeing the kind of ramifications of this and the ripple effects. I think another interesting thing to point out is the silver lining is the kind of outpouring of support that artists are receiving right now. We've seen everything from the Seattle author Ijoma Oluo, who has launched a relief fund for Seattle, which was a city, of course, that was at the end, at the center of the outbreak in Washington. We have seen a curator in the Midwest who started a spreadsheet for those that couldn't participate in this year's Los Angeles Art Book Fair hosted by Printed Matter. Which we blogged. Which we blogged so which people can check it about, out. Yep. Which we blogged about. That's correct. And so we're seeing really at this point hundreds of GoFundMe, hundreds of calls for support, and also a lot of different ways of experiencing art digitally. Absolutely. So, Hakeem, what are the stuff you've been seeing from your circles? Because, you know, I have to say one of the things I just, you know, about an hour ago on Facebook, I was like, hey, we're going to do a COVID-19 podcast. Does anyone have stories? And the stories are kind of incredible in so many different ways. Like someone just told me that Nina Kachadorian, the artist, is doing online art classes just for fun, like with her cat. <laughs> and uh, now they're sending out assignments and her cat's doing art classes. But then another artist, something really serious, mentioned that, you know, she was about to get her first museum solo show and it was canceled rather than postponed. And here is after all this, like she might be stuck with all these payments and stuff she made preparing for this major show and nothing. And yeah. now they're, now they're probably going to be lawyers involved or something. But unfortunately, I don't think that's unusual. Yeah. I was speaking to a friend who was an artist the other day, and she had an opening scheduled for this week. And um, she spent quite a lot of money on framing her paintings, and everything was sent to the gallery, and now it's canceled indefinitely. No idea what's going to happen. So on the one hand, you know, being an artist is uh, like being a writer is like a solitary uh, vocation. You know, you're at your studio, you're not coming in contact with people. It works well with the social distancing, but people are just uh, worried. I mean, everyone is worried. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, we've been talking a lot about the Green New Deal. Now it's more relevant than ever. I'm thinking about the uh, WPA. Yeah, the project. Well, you know, during the 2008 um, crisis, there was talk about enacting some kind of WPA-like program for artists. Of course, it never went. It never happened. Yeah. The Obama, Obama administration never quite, you know, went to that level. And I mean, I agree with you, but at the same time, it makes me wonder whether we're going to get it. You know, I think this proves why Medicare for all or some sort of single payer system is necessary. I mean, Spain just nationalized their private hospitals today. Really? I mean, it was like, it's clearly this is a huge like burden. But now we still have this man in the White House who's like talking about like private companies will help us do these tests. And I mean, do I trust a private company in times of crisis to not profit from my pain? I don't know. I don't know. Not in the case of healthcare. I don't know. What's your take, Valentina? Well, I think it's a good time to talk about how much museums and institutions depend on private funding in this country and how dangerous that is. I've been reading a lot of scary headlines about how 
Private philanthropy is going to suffer now as people tighten their wallets. And it really kind of begs the question of who is going to support museums? The American Alliance of Museums recently joined in a letter that was authored by several nonprofits asking Congress to include museums and nonprofits in their COVID relief packages. I mean, I think that's great, but I will say that I hope they separate it because I think there are so many museums that rely on private money mm -hmm. and are private, quote unquote, mm -hmm. in what are they weigh. I don't think they should get a bailout personally. Mm -hmm. I think we should only bail out public institutions right. personally. Like, I don't think, you know, the Whitney Museum needs a bailout. You mm -hmm. know, they consider themselves private, whatever. Sure. I don't see why we should be doling out money when, you know, this is a museum that wouldn't even talk to the press in times of crisis. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? They don't deserve our support, in my opinion. Same thing with, you know, the new museum or some of these other smaller institutions that don't really have a public mandate in the same way. So I don't know. Am I being too harsh, Hakeem? Oh, uh, no, no. But, you know, maybe one of the unintended consequences of this is an end to all this uh, toxic philanthropy for museums. Maybe museums should be funded by the state. Yeah, that would be nice, or at least a combination, a healthy combination of the two. I mean, I don't think anyone's fully against private, but the reality is they have all this money because they are not being taxed. And then they could decide, instead of, you know, building that bridge, we'll, you know, spend half a billion dollars on a museum, you know, and you're like, ah, sometimes this is kind of like, you know, it's questionable. And obviously we want the arts to thrive, but I have to say I'm a little hesitant and I don't want this to become another issue of privatizing public finances or public, uh, you know, generosity. What else did you find? So what are some of the other reports in your running list of COVID-19 related uh, info, Valentina, that you've discovered? I mean, I think one thing that we're really seeing is the way that universities are having to adapt to maybe teaching online art classes. I've been speaking to some professors of studio art. It's very different when you have to teach a history class or a math class online. Maybe you can just pull up a PowerPoint. But what's happening now with MFA and BFA teachers that have to teach printmaking, that have to teach sculpture, yeah. that have to teach darkroom photography. I heard of one professor that is going to set up a darkroom and give her students virtual tours on her phone. And, and then what assignment do you give those students? Right. spoke to one printmaking professor that said that she's going to give her students an assignment where they have to implement printmaking-like techniques, like, for example, using black and white, uh, black ink only and cross-hatching, so drawing techniques that resemble printmaking, but they don't have access to printmaking equipment right now. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's really interesting. How and, and what precedent does it set? I've heard some professors are afraid that, you know, being forced to teach online classes for studio art will set this precedent where universities now say, oh, we can do this. Yeah. You know, well, there's been fear. I mean, I spoke to a professor friend at a major institution in the city, and I think they really afraid that the university is going to be replacing academics with right. these sort of online classes in different ways. And you can imagine how it's going to get messy if they can outsource them to countries where, you know, things people get paid less right. and, you know, people still have PhDs and other things. And this can be, mm -hmm. you know, 
scary. You know, it's interesting now that we're talking about how artists are adapting. I saw an article circulating about how artists are the least exposed to the virus because they're usually working in isolation and they're the they're among the least at risk, I think, based on analysis oh, that the New York Times did. <laughs> and the New York Times analysis was broad ranging, covered a lot of different industries and, and artists were inevitably among the least at risk only in terms of access to other humans. But in right. terms of access to healthcare, in terms of having a salary that you can depend on, I believe they're among the most at risk. Well, yeah, they're most vulnerable, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, at least, especially to have like the resources totally. to cope with that. Absolutely. So I think this is kind of, and also that, that idea of an artist is actually kind of old school. Mm. Do you know, not all artists are like pent up in their, you know, totally. like their studio working away. And of course there are artist assistants and a lot of other people mm -hmm. involved. So I don't know. I've kind of rolled my eyes a little when I saw that story. And people yeah. share studios and they, you know, have the building that have many studios in them and, and so often on. not proper heat not things so they're yeah. like immune you know it's like you know all these different they're things they're not exactly on. clean places yeah exactly they're not well maintained or i mean there are a lot of obviously there are different kinds of studios but that also suggests that artists are still in studios which is not always true a lot of young artists especially often work in pretty close quarters and often in especially younger artists often live with like three or four roommates and you know yeah. so it's not you know maybe their work conditions one thing uh, one artist that mentioned to me we were talking a little bit about like what people can do for their kids. One artist mentioned Gallery North in Long Island is doing a 15 minute long online art class for kids every day, which, you know, one of the people on my thread just was like, this is a really great thing for those of us who are homeschooling or like, you know, having to educate our kids at home right now. Oh, so I thought that was a great idea of a way that they can, you know, sort of like reach out to other people and of course this isn't even mentioning um you know the fact that so many cities have invested mm -hmm. so much money in a lot of these festivals right and that's going to be a i mean we're talking the olympics still has not canceled believe it's it or wild. not i can't believe that oh it hasn't the tokyo olympics has not canceled and everyone is kind of shocked but at the same time you can imagine in tokyo olympics at the end of the day they probably spend billions and billions of dollars yeah. And what does this mean, you know, for a, a city like that, that has like thrown all this money at it in times of economic crisis? So the, explain this to me, Hurag, as somebody who, uh, who um, runs a business. So those you have all those budgets that are not being spent now because events are canceled. On right. the other hand, you're not having revenue, not you. I mean, yep, I a cultural it. institution. Mm. So on the one hand, you're kind of saving money mm -hmm. during this period unless you know well if you're not paying people if you're not paying people well yeah. that's the thing that's that's the reality it's part of it is it's like yes maybe but you know especially museums in new york a lot of them depend on admission yeah. so closing a whole month down you know that impacts a lot of things it's the yeah. gift store you know it's like people buying things on the way out using the restaurants in there all those people that work in there all the guards the extra hours i mean that's that's part of the issue so it's yeah. not to say that hopefully in a month or so things will come back and meaning like we'll all be like wandering around and all the funds will come back and people will be spending again. But as we've seen in other times, people get really anxious and nervous about like spending money in these times of crisis. So yeah. everyone's trying to like hold on to their dollars and a lot of people are not getting paid as a result. We've been seeing Valentina today, you mentioned quad cinema, other, th other places that are having these questions about what they're doing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What you're hearing? 
Sure. I spoke with a couple of employees at Quad Cinema that have generally been talking about not receiving any clear directives from corporate. So the Charles Cohen Group in Uptown Manhattan has not necessarily been keeping them in the loop of whether they plan on compensating workers. And you have to remember, cinema workers, most of them, except for management and those that work in administrative offices, they're hourly workers, right? Right. Like they're ushers, they're, you know, letting people in and stamping tickets. And so this is a population, the theater population is going to be very affected by this. And it's, it has been a little scary to see how an institution like Quad Cinema, which is, I think, one of the few institutions that is, well, few cinematic institutions, maybe that's really backed by a billionaire founder, still has no sense of what they're going to do moving forward. And in in line with that, I thought I'd mention how public school closures are going to be affecting museum workers, which is not a connection you necessarily think of, but museum educators, they get paid by the hour to give school tours. I've been speaking to a few employees at the Whitney who are saying, we were told that we'll be paid through the end of the month, which, you know, some of them think it's pretty good. Some of them want a little bit more, but there is a sense of, gosh, is this going to be really 14 days? Is it going to be eight weeks? Is it going to be, you know, classes are out in New York until April 20th. Mm -hmm. The mayor has gone on to say that it's very possible they'll be out through the rest of the school year. That's right. So what does that look like for people who make a living by giving museum tours to children? Yeah, I mean, teaching art class. Yesterday, I heard some people saying in the U.S. it might lead, uh, it might last into June and July. Yeah, you know, which is first of all going to really hit a lot of summer programs. Right. Do you know? And speaking to your point, um, Hakeem, it's like you know, yes, they can pay them, but if people are not paying the fees to participate, where's the money coming from? Yeah. You know, and it's not just that. It's like in the case of I, I teach at the Chautauqua Summer School. It's not just you know necessarily the facility it's all the workers the seasonal workers around there mm-hmm. which tend to come from poorer communities they're not going to have jobs for the summer the, how are they going to support themselves how are the little restaurants in the area going to support themselves i mean there's like there's a domino effect obviously with this like yeah. the met the met is you know one ginormous museum closed down and i guarantee you all the businesses around the met have been impacted by the fact they closed mm. you know as an example, and that's a pretty affluent neighborhood. Yeah. Just think about all those uh, food carts. Oh yeah, absolutely. And who who's going to want to eat at a food court right now? I've never been a fan anyway, but right. But I'm thinking a lot about the idea of solidarity because that's a great point. Part, part of the the reason why this is spreading so fast is globalization, right? Right. The global village, so interconnectedness, yep. and so on. And this is calling for solidarity, but as opposed to previous uh, crises, you can't meet people. You can't gather around, you can't congregate and plan something. You can't even support each other, you know, face to face because you're supposed to socially um, isolate or distance yourself. So I'm thinking a lot about what are your thoughts about that? How, How we show solidarity? And also, we're not talking, I mean, most countries in times of crisis, people come together and fight uh, together against uh, especially an external enemy. But this is global. This is calling for global solidarity. But you know, what did make me worried was when now Trump is using the term Chinese virus. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, which is terrible because we've had an uptake in Asian American hate attacks, right? And I mean, most Asian Americans have nothing to do with China. You know, obviously, that's, I mean, it seems like such a truism to say, but it's the reality. You know, and he's like amping this up because I think he does benefit from this idea of a foreign 
something invader, right? This feeds into the rhetoric. Valentina, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's scary to think that people continue to call this the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus, even though it's been now weeks that we have seen community spread, that we have deaths all over the world that are much higher than they are in China or in Asian countries in general. So I think there's definitely an idea, going back to the idea of solidarity, I mean, I think solidarity also extends to not spreading false information, digital solidarity. What does that look like? I have to say, as somebody that works in media, and I know that you guys can relate, it's hard not being on Twitter. It's hard not being on Instagram because part of her job is to be on those websites and to look for information. And just the, the labor of sifting through false information, the labor of sifting through the racism and, and the feeling of xenophobia has been incredibly emotionally taxing for me. Agreed. Yeah, I have a friend who's a, an adjunct at a big university in New York. She's Chinese-American. She was born here. She's totally American. And she was at um, a Whole Foods store in Manhattan, and some person told her to get back where she came from. Yeah, there you are. And um, Yeah, at the heart of Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, I know someone who's a college, a college professor, also Asian American, similarly was sort of like, you know, told something that that was shocking. And I mean, unfortunately, these are pretty common, you know, Valentina, how are you feeling generally? Because I think this is also, you know, I think it's all about our personal sort of self-care a little bit as well and how we're sort of dealing with this. So how are you coping? You know, one thing that I wanted to mention was the amount of resources online for things to do at home now that you're stuck at home. Yeah. The kind of influx of the Philharmonic Opera, uh, the Philharmonic in Berlin has now made its streaming platform that's usually a paid platform free, I think, through the rest of the month. The Met Opera streaming concerts also for free. Mm -hmm. There's this idea of now you're at home and you need to be doing things. And personally, for me, as a person that's still working full time. I mean, this may be true of people who are, you know, stuck at home and they can't do any work because their work involves, you know, is client facing or service industry work. But for me, I feel like I'm still working and I'm trying to maintain normalcy, you know, and maintaining normalcy doesn't involve now suddenly have a bunch of free time where I like download coloring books, which God bless the people that are doing that. (laughs) Like, that's amazing. Great for them. Or these lists of like 100 movies to see now that you're quarantined. I'm like, I don't have time to watch those movies. And also, I am trying as much as possible to feel normal. That means going for a run in the morning. It means having my lunch sitting outside on my stoop. It means maintaining regular work hours. It means getting dressed for work. Right. That's what I'm doing. Even at home? Yes, I put on jeans. Uh, that'll be the way. How are you, Kim? What's your schedule? How are you coping? Listen, I was born to parents who are easily stressed about everything. So it's always <laughs> been my tendency, a personal tendency, to stay calm in time of uh, you know crisis and pressure. But I have to admit that this one is getting to me. Uh, the number of times when I decided I'm not going to panic, I don't care, I'm just going to be careful. And, but I have noticed that I have uh, seriously amped up my consumption of raw garlic and honey and lemon. Oh. I eat that stuff nonstop, you know, to strengthen my immune system and right. stay away. Home remedies. I think it's important to remember that this too shall pass. Yep. 
That's right. Similarly, I think I've just been like cautious, if anything. You know, I think this is where you're, you you don't know what's going to happen. If anything, I think the anxiety of just like financially, what is this all going to mean? Because no one seems to have a plan is probably more uh, inducing than the idea of getting sick. Though I am concerned. My mother is in her 70s. Uh, yeah. My in-laws are too. It's like, you know, you're concerned for people. I mean, this can be really fatal for a lot of older populations. That's yeah. the thing. I think a lot about my parents who are now in their 80s and late 70s. And that's, uh, so I have the financial anxiety when it comes to me. But when it comes to the virus, I think, I only think about my parents. Right. So I'm calling them more than usual. I usually avoid calling them. <laughs> Gosh, I'm, I'm calling my mom several times a day. Yeah, and I'm calling them every two days. I'm texting them. <laughs> you okay? Take care. Don't, don't invite anyone. Don't go anywhere and so on. So you got the soundtrack. You uh, talked to the artist, Hakeem, that created the sound of COVID-19. Now, do you want to explain to us what exactly that is? And we'll play it, of course, uh, for listeners. It's, it actually is what introduced the segment and we'll play it at the end and I'll just play a little segment now. So let's just listen to it for a second. Okay, what can you tell us about it? This is a soundtrack by artist Eric Dress mm -hmm. from the UK, and he translated the DNA composition of COVID-19 as provided by the CDC into musical notes. And he created this electronic track. It's two hours long, and he's offering it for download, but if you remix it, please contact him first. Yep, okay, so what do you think of the soundtrack? I love it, but I also find it a little bit alarming. I mean, you can almost feel it like jumping from one person to another. And, and it's enjoying it, the virus, wow. that is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a lot of action. It's very upbeat, but also a bit scary. Uh, is, is there a reason why it's two hours long? Is that arbitrary or is that based on another um, calculation? It's just something for you to play when you want to relax while being self-distanced. <laughs> Social distance. Nothing so, relaxes yeah. me quite like the sound of crowd. I was about to say, I was about to say, I, <laughs> I mean, I think this is kind of, it, it does sound kind of nice. It's sort of interesting that the idea of like creating music out of this pandemic, you know, I think it definitely just shows that artists are looking for things to do sometimes. And that's a-okay with me. Yeah. And there's also humor in it. And I think we desperately need humor these days. Yeah, absolutely. So now, uh, Valentina, any last minute updates? Anything that you think people would want to know about, about what's going on in the art community, globally or even locally? I mean, one of the things you reported a few days ago was the fact that art museums in South Korea and China, some of them have been reopening. Yes, that's true. And I think it's because those are countries that have been able to, uh, you know, what they say is flatten the curve. And we're not there yet. But it is definitely a good sign that some institutions there are starting to open. We probably won't see that here for a very long time, in part because our government's response to this crisis is so delayed. Right. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention is, you know, we briefly talked about the importance of open spaces. We sadly just heard that the Brooklyn Botanical Garden has decided to close. Right. 
And I think we'll see a lot of those places that were kind of the last spaces of contemplation left are going to start doing the same. Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which is a landmark historic cemetery, is still open from what I understand. And they were, as of last week, offering smaller tours mm-hmm. um, to reduce the, the group sizes, but still kind of holding on to that idea. As of yesterday, I checked in with them. They're still doing it. Hope to check in today. Hope to hear that they're still open. And at, personally, as a journalist, I'm very curious about what remains what Mm. remains open, what spaces remain available, what the social conditioning is around inhabiting big open spaces, parks, this kind of thing. Absolutely. Imagine if they close Central Park. Yeah. It could very well happen. I think what we're seeing, what I have seen in compiling this report is that first institutions were implementing the most inventive and creative measures. For example, the Brooklyn Public Library decided to automatically renew library cards. Um, Even if you didn't ask for it, they just renewed them. Why? Because they wanted to keep people from physically going to the library to renew their cards, which is something that you usually have to go into the space to do. Some of these inventive things, you know, now that we're shutting the doors, now that there's closures, those things aren't necessarily happening with as much frequency anymore. What we're seeing is all out shutdowns and migrations to digital spaces. We're seeing the 92nd Street Y host its drawing at the National History Museum class using Zoom, Mm -hmm. zooming into objects at the museum, but not being physically in the space. So we're seeing a lot of migration to digital platforms, but I was kind of really enjoying seeing how institutions were just trying to get the numbers down, the visitor numbers down. Wow, that's interesting. Absolutely. So I think one of the things we'll be monitoring is sort of like when plans come into place, when people really have a good idea of when these will, when things will happen. In the case of China, today the BBC reported they interviewed an American in Wuhan who mentioned he had been quarantined for over 50 days. And now finally, people are starting to go out in public. And it looks like things may return back to normal, but 50 days is a long time. So I can only imagine that for us would mean May, really, at the end of the day, and whether things will return to normal. And I think a lot of students are really upset that they're not, some especially in their senior year, are upset they're not able to have maybe the graduation they've always wanted or the face-to-face contact with students. And, um, you know, I I do hope that this isn't being used by some big corporations like some universities, private universities and others, to find ways to cut costs in the future, by which I mean, you know, replacing professors, which are already precarious as it is, and doing online classes and, and cutting costs of other things. But I also could see this very well going that direction. Yeah, I mean, I know a professor who's worried now. Everything's recorded yep. on those. That they're just gonna reuse her recorded classes from that's this right. year. Yeah. That's right, I mean, yeah. they could very well do that. And that's yeah. kind of, it's also a resource that they've been doing. So yeah, we're gonna, you know, observe what's going on. What were you gonna say, Valentina? Well, one last thing is, you know, for some students, university is their income, work-study students. Mm -hmm. The way they make their money, I spoke to one student who is a work-study studio assistant, so she's a visual arts BFA, but you know, she makes, she works 17 hours a week, and that's how she said she pays for her groceries and her studio materials by, as a studio assistant for MFA and BFA art professors, and she's not being paid right now. So I think there's also that. There's also, for a lot of people, university is 
you know, a home. It's a job. It's much more than just a learning institution. And we're seeing how that institution is, it's, it's kind of revealing the fault lines, I think, in society in that way. Great. Absolutely. A special thanks to Eric Drass for allowing us to use the COVID-19 track in this episode. And if you want to follow the daily coverage about COVID-19 and its impact on the art community, please visit hyperallergic.com. Valentina has been updating the post about the impacts daily, and we're also reporting numerous other stories as well. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week. <laughs>